With the rest, we open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It's on page 1160 in one of those pew Bibles, if that's what you're using. Ephesians chapter 6. As we are nearing the end of our study of Ephesians, I think just about three sermons left, and then this one's in the can. So, Ephesians 6, page 1160. And let me just uh, start at verse 10 and read through the passage so we have the whole context before we dig into our particular verse. It says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we do love you. We worship you. We praise you because you alone are God. Besides you, there is no other. We worship you because you love us so much. We thank you for Christmas and what this time of year means to us. We thank you, Lord, that that it means you sent your only son as your gift to us to die on the cross so that we might be reconciled to you. And Lord, uh, even as I say those words, they're so deep and profound. And I pray, Lord, that this time of year you would continue to impress upon us the magnitude of your love toward us in Jesus. That you would continue to show us what an amazingly mind-blowing thing you've done in sending your Son to rescue us from our sins. Lord, we, we so easily repeat those words, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We have a cross here on the wall. And Lord, it's so easy just to get used to that concept. But God, I pray that it would be ever fresh in our minds. That you would help us to keep diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the meaning of the cross. And as we see more and more the beauty of Jesus, may we be transformed more and more like him. We ask, Lord, you might do this through your Holy Spirit. We know that it's not something we can do. We can't make ourselves better Christians. We can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We know that your Holy Spirit has to do this in us. And so, Lord, we, we stand, continue to stand by faith, asking that you would fill us up with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that you send your spirit through your word. And so now, Lord, because we want the spirit, because we want Jesus, we open up our Bibles. Because we know that this is how you reveal Jesus to us. These are the swaddling clothes in which the baby Jesus is wrapped. And so, Lord, as we open the Bibles, we desire to open up those swaddling clothes and see Christ. Would you show them to us this morning, we pray. In his name, amen. So the Roman Catholic Church 
was in really big trouble in the 14th century. Really big trouble. It was a time of uh, decline for the, the Catholic Church. It was the uh, century in which the great papal schism began. Uh, the great papal schism was when there were two, and at, at one point actually three competing popes vying for control of, of uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the church itself had become sort of this uh, elephantine uh, machinery. It had become this huge bureaucracy that, that was gobbling up resources uh, from places. It was seemed to be driven by money. It had become very corrupt. The people in the bureaucracy lived very lavish lifestyles and uh, you know, were using their power in the church to, to gain wealth and, and to live uh, sort of lives of luxury. But it wasn't just at the upper echelons of the church where there was corruption in the 14th century. There was also problems at the parish levels. Uh, each individual church and parish uh, had problems. By and large, uh, the priesthood was uh, leading a very ineffective and lax ministry in those days. It said that uh, priests would kind of mumble and rush through their masses just to get them over with, and, and people weren't getting much out of it. There was no spiritual connection between the, what was being done in the parishes and the people. Sexual misconduct among the priesthood was rampant uh, in those days. So it, it really was an, an ineffective time for the church. And uh, if you want to look at it in terms of Ephesians chapter 6, which we've been studying here, we've been thinking of the Christian life as a battle, as a war, that following Jesus is like a war. And uh, in that context, I think it's safe to say that in the 14th century anyway, the church was losing that battle. That the church seemed to be regressing, the church seemed to be declining and being pushed back uh, in, in a number of different fronts. And I bring up that historical uh, illustration because I think it raises a, the question I want to raise today, which is, okay, what do you do in those situations? What does the church do to find whatever you want to call it, reformation, revival, renewal? How do you take a moribund church that seems to be spiraling downward and, and push it back in the direction of following Christ, push it back toward uh, godliness and, and spiritual vitality? I mean, that's a question for the ages. N not just in the 14th century, it's a question for today. It's a question for local churches. How does South Shore Baptist Church uh, uh, press forward in the Christian life and not shrink back and decline spiritually in its, its walk with Christ. It's a question you can even take, you can ratchet it down to the individual level and say, for me as an individual Christian, there's been those times in my life when I've fallen away from Christ, when instead of my faith being a blazing fire, it's more like a couple smoldering embers. There's been those times in my own Christian life where I've just gotten worldly in my thinking, worldly in my behavior, worldly in my attitudes toward other people. And, and so when I get in those places in my life where I'm not following Christ the way I know I should, and I'm not praying, and I'm not studying the Bible or whatever, how do I get back to that spirit-filled, vibrant Christian life? So what's, what's the secret? Is there an offensive weapon in the spiritual battle so that when we're being pushed back, we can attack back against the darkness and against the sin in our own lives or in a church or in a culture or whatever? And today as we study Ephesians 6, we finally come to the offensive weapon in the spiritual battle. Up to this point, we've been looking at the defensive armor, but every soldier must have a weapon. You can't just stand there and take the blows. You have to fight back if you're going to win this spiritual engagement. And our weapon is there in verse 17. 
It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has a sword. The Holy Spirit has a weapon that's available to us. In this spiritual conflict, there is spiritual armament that we must take. It's not an option. You must arm yourself if you're going to be in this spiritual battle. It's not like, well, I might take it, I might not take it. No, no, no. It's like going out in the battle without your gun, going out in the conflict without your sword. You have to have this weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's weapon. It's God's weapon that He uses to fight against sin and darkness in this world. And what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. It's what you're holding in your hand right now. This is this is the weapon. This is the earthly, visible weapon that the invisible Holy Spirit uses in this world to do His work. Word and Spirit always go together in the Bible. If, if you want the Holy Spirit, you've got to open up the Word. And if you want to understand the Word, you need the Holy Spirit. They always are connected uh, in biblical thought. Word and Spirit always go together. And if we want the Holy Spirit to flow into a church if we want the Holy Spirit to flow into our lives, then we have to let, take out the sword out of its scabbard. We have to open up our Bibles, and we have to let the Holy Spirit use His weapon in our lives and in our churches and in our communities. This is the sword of the Spirit. It's interesting, we've seen this connection between Word and Spirit before in Ephesians. In fact, I, I preached on it, so maybe I could just review this uh, little sermon. I'm sure you all remember the sermon word for word, but for those of you who don't, it may be a little fuzzy. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18. Ephesians 5, 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So don't get drunk, because when you get drunk... Alcohol takes over and you act like an idiot and, and it leads to behaviors which, which are called debauchery. Debauchery just means, you know, ruinous living. So d don't get drunk on wine because it leads to that kind of lifestyle. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, let God's Holy Spirit control and rule your life. And, and what are the behaviors that result? Well, they're in verse 19. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in, in our English Bibles, those sound like commandments, but in Greek, they're actually participles, which doesn't mean a lot to you, but what it means is that, that, that those words are consequences of being filled with the Spirit. In other words, if you're filled with the Spirit... This is the kind of behavior that results. It's, so the parallel is with getting drunk. If you get drunk, you kind of act this way. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you tend to act this way. And so these, these are the behaviors that result. Now what's interesting is, and this one, I think this is really cool, when you turn to Colossians, which is the parallel epistle to Ephesians. In fact, turn to Colossians 3. We've talked about this before. Colossians is very similar to Ephesians, both in content and structure. In fact, scholars kind of scratch their heads and rub their chins and f try to figure out why are Colossians and Ephesians so similar? Did Paul write them right, one right after the other? Was he looking at Ephesians when he wrote Colossians? Was he looking in Colossians when he wrote Ephesians? They're so similar. There has to be some kind of perhaps even literary uh, connection between the two. So wh what that means for us is that if, 
we're struggling with something in Ephesians, we can look at Colossians. And there's often a parallel thought that illuminates it. And Colossians, likewise, can interpret Ephesians and vice versa. Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, 16 to 17, here's the parallel to be filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Here we go. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to, the, to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. So same behaviors. There's singing, speaking. There's uh, giving thanks. But instead of it flowing from being filled with the Spirit, now it's let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So for Paul, these are kinds of interchangeable ideas. Well, yeah, being filled with the Spirit, which is the same thing as letting God's Word dwell in you richly. So if I want the Holy Spirit in my life empowering and flowing through me, then that means the Word of God has to dwell in me richly. I, I have to open up my Bibles. I, I think sometimes we get focused on one or the other. Uh, you know, Pentecostals tend to talk about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Baptists tend to talk about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. But the fact is, you have to have Word and Spirit together. And, and if you don't have spirit, then, you know, all your Bible study is just going to be dry, flaky crustiness. And if you just emphasize the spirit without the Bible, then you can kind of launch into outer space and, and you're detached from, from reality. And you can get all kinds of crazy ideas. Well, the spirit told me this and the spirit told me that. And you go, are you sure the spirit told you that? And the way we know if the spirit told us that is that the spirit never speaks contrary to the Bible. So we need the spirit and the word together to, to keep us on track. And the Spirit always works with the Word, and the Word always works with the Spirit. And it's when we take the Word of God and the Spirit speaks through it that things really happen in our lives. That's what happened in the 14th century. Uh, I used that illustration before. It was a time of spiritual decline for the church. The, uh, the fire of the faith had kind of died down to just smoldering ashes. But even among the ashes, there were still some white-hot coals. If you dig down in the fire, there's always some coals. There was, it's not like the church had totally de deceased. God was still faithful to his church. And one of those coals, not the only one, but one of the coals, was a guy named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was an Englishman. He was a, a Catholic priest. He was a theologian. He spent, he's one of these academic, pointy-headed academic types who spent most of his life teaching theology in Oxford. And, until the very last few years of his life, from about the last eight or nine years of his life, he suddenly launched into a new career, and he began basically just attacking and confronting the abuses and corruptions and scandals that he saw taking place in the church and, and, and started speaking against them. In fact, his, his teaching won such a wide following that, that it became a real problem for the church. People came from all over to hear his teaching, and people were being touched by what he was saying as he was pointing out the problems in the church. Um, in fact, 25 years after his death, th this movement had become so large and widespread that, that the church convened a, a council of sorts, and they condemned his teachings officially. 44 years after his death, by papal order, his bones were dug up from holy ground, burned, and cast into the river. The ashes were cast into the river. That's how, you know, this, this movement of his kept having steam. They had to, like, bones and burn them as a heretic or something. But even then, the teachings of, of Wycliffe spread to Bohemia. 
to John Huss, and from John Huss to Luther. And that's why Wycliffe, even though he was a century and a half before Luther, is called the morning star of the Reformation, because that's when you know, the first stars started to shine in the Reformation. And, uh, and, and Wycliffe's uh, t teachings had such power. Why were his teachings so powerful? Why is this pointy-headed theologian from Oxford suddenly creating this massive reform movement in declining church? There's only one answer to the question. He picked up the sword of the Spirit. He opened up his Bible, and he began to address the problems in the church. But it wasn't just some guy spouting off, some talk show host just giving his opinion, and you calling to give your opinion. He was going back to the Bible. He was saying, look, 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 it says this, but we're doing this. That doesn't make sense. And, and it says this, but we're doing that. And he kept bringing the church back to the Bible. That's why his... his um, uh, pro protestations, you know, to use the Protestant word, that's originally where it came from, that's where his protests against the church had traction, because he was saying, look, it's right here in the Bible. Read it, and you'll see. In fact, it, it was so powerful that he sent out um, these uh, traveling preachers. They were called the Lollards. The Lollards went all over England, and, and what they did was they just kind of regular plain Joes, and they just had on a, a robe and a staff and no shoes in accordance with the gospel pattern. And they went out two by two, and, and they just talked to the people in plain English of the 14th century, and they just talked to them about the Bible. They said, that's what the Bible says, and they taught them in English from the Bible, not Latin, in English. And people were like, wow, what is this? What's the Bible? And of course, what was Wycliffe's great contribution? You know, what's he most famous for? He translated the Bible into English. That's why we have today Wycliffe Bible Translators. Maybe you've heard of that missions organization. In the spirit of Wycliffe, they go into countries and they translate the Bible into the, they call it the, the heart language of the people because they believe you just got to get the Bible in people's language and then the spirit's going to work through his word. And that's what happened in the 14th century. Under Wycliffe's leadership, the Bible was translated into English. Up to that point, there had been little portions of the Bible in English, but now it was in the, the plain, vernacular, everyday Joe language of the masses of England. And people, not just the clergy, but the people could read the Bible for themselves, and they could go back to the source of Christian faith. N not, not the accrued and accumulated, evolved teachings of the church over the centuries, but back to the bedrock of what Christ actually taught and what the apostles actually taught. And so there was a great purification of the church that was taking place. And it was by this sword of the Spirit that this pointy-headed theologian from Oxford was able to push back the darkness. And the Word of God was doing its work in people's lives. Be careful of this book. It's a dangerous book. You know, there should be a warning label on the Bible. Warning to all who read this book. Because God works through the Word and through the Holy Spirit. And that's how spiritual life comes back in to our lives as individuals as well as to the church. Now this should make sense because Satan's primary attack against us in the spiritual war is false teaching. The primary attack of the devil in the spiritual battle is false teaching. It's lies. He's the father of lies. I mean, that's another way to put it. It's lying. It's distortion of truth. Satan is the father of lies, and, and he lies. He's a, a, a professional. He's a virtuoso at lying. He's so good at lying. And that's what false teaching is. It's taking truth and distorting it and lying about truth. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? 
That was Satan's first attack. He came to Adam and Eve, and what did he do? False teaching. God said, don't touch that tree. That's the tree you're not supposed to eat from. There's the word of God. Wasn't written down in the Bible yet, but he said it, and they heard it. Don't touch the tree. All right, got your word, Lord. That's the word of God. And Satan comes along, and he says, did did he say not to touch that tree? Oh, yeah, if we touch that tree, we're going to die. Oh, you're not going to die. You're going to become like God. It's false doctrine from the get-go. And so Adam and Eve go, yeah, maybe you're right. So they believe the false doctrine, then they distrust God, and then they disobey God. Because Satan knows that if you poison the wellspring of truth, if you poison my beliefs, it will flow down into my behavior. If you want to change someone's behavior, change the way they think. And it's from our beliefs and our, if I want to put it this way, our doctrine. Everyone here has doctrine. Some of you here go, I'm not into doctrine. You have a doctrine. Everyone has doctrine. What you believe about God, even if it's, well, I don't know if there's a God. That's your doctrine. And it's from our doctrine and our beliefs. Everyone here has doctrine. The question is, is it good doctrine or bad doctrine? And and it's from our doctrine and our beliefs flows our lives and, and the way we live. So Satan comes at the issue of doctrine, and he attacks it because he knows that's how he poisons uh, the church. In fact, look at your uh, sermon notes. A little insert in your bulletin. If you just take a minute. This insert in your bulletin. If you look at the bottom, there's a box on the front page. Quote by a guy named Arthur Pink. Kind of a quirky theologian from the beginning of last century interesting fellow, great theologian though. He says, it is by doctrine through the power of the Spirit that believers are united. And where doctrine is neglected, growth in grace and effective witnessing for Christ necessarily ceases. The relation between divine truth and Christian character is that of cause and effect. The relationship between divine truth and Christian character is cause and effect. If we want Christ's power to flow in our lives, if we want the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, then we have to think the right way. We need God's truth. And so, of course, that's right where Satan goes for. Because <laughs> he knows if he can turn off the spigot of truth flowing into our lives, that he's thereby turned off the spigot of the Holy Spirit flowing into our lives. Because word and spirit always go together. Um, in fact, look at Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6 again. Look at verse 11. This is interesting. I... I was grooving on this when I saw this in the text. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, what are the devil's schemes? What, what does he plan? How does he attack? Well, it's interesting. If you look up that word schemes in Greek in the rest of the New Testament, it only appears one other place in the New Testament. Isn't this exciting? It only appears one other place. In the, I know, you're all fired up like I am. At one other place. This is fascinating. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Only other place in the whole Bible it appears in the New Testament in Greek. 4.14. says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Oh, oh, that's cool, isn't it? So using the Bible to interpret itself, not the church, 
not Jeremy, but using the Bible to interpret itself, which is how you're supposed to interpret the Bible, you look at the, at the text and you say, okay, so what are the devil's schemes? Well, I know probably one of them is the false teaching here. It's the same word. Paul's making a verbal linkage between these two passages with that word uh, scheme. Um, and, and, it, and so it, it should tell us that, yeah, among whatever other schemes Satan has, this is one of his schemes, is false teaching. And notice what happens when, when we're poisoned with false teaching, verse 14. We're infants. You see that? Infants, we're, we're spiritually immature, if we're Christians at all. And if we are Christians, we, we tend to remain in a spiritually immature place. We're blown back and forth by the waves. This book comes out, and that idea comes out, and well, I don't know, and this person said that, and I heard this preacher say this, and another guy on the radio said that, and you know, we kind of just go along with whatever anybody says, like the waves. But, but to mature in your faith, to become a strong, mature Christian, you have to read the Bible yourself. You can't let me be your Bible teacher. You can't let some radio program. You need to read the Bible yourself. You need to dig in. Because it says there, verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. It's as we speak the truth in love, not nasty people, but in love, saying, hey, look, this is what God's word says. That's when... The truth builds up the church because it is through doctrine and the Holy Spirit's power, through word and spirit, that the church and Christians are revived and purified and energized. That's just the way God's chosen to do it, is through his word. And again, that's what happened in the the 14th century when we look at, I keep going back to Wycliffe, I'm just just trying to use him as as a, for instance, kind of a a running illustration as an example. And, And that's what Wycliffe did in the 14th century. His assault was essentially a theological assault. It was not a political revolution. He was not trying to get into the church and make political maneuvers to change it. He essentially attacked the theological level, which was the issue at hand. And he assaulted the bad theology of the church. He assaulted all these doctrines and ideas that aren't in the Bible, but it just kind of like developed over time, like plaque in an artery. You know, it just kind of develops and it grows and it, this piece adds. And then and over time, until it eventually starts choking out the life of the church and the flow of the Holy Spirit. And, and Wycliffe went in with the Bible like a surgeon, cleaning that stuff off the walls of the artery, saying, like, that's not in the Bible. And that's not in the Bible. And, you know, what does this have to say in the Bible? He, he's, in a sense, he kind of cleaned off all that residual doctrine that had just gummed up the works of the church. Uh, let me just read you an example from, um, this is a guy named Lauderette. He wrote, uh, this is his first volume of Christian history. He wrote a couple. Uh, he had to read this whole thing for seminary. Now you know why I'm so messed up. Um, <laughs> and this is what, uh, this is what Wycliffe, for, for, here, for instance, here's some examples of Wycliffe's teaching. Wycliffe argued that the true church, the, the real church, is made up of those elected by God through salvation and is invisible. And, and since it is God's choice which determines membership, no visible church or its officers can control or exclude from membership into the, the true church. Not the visible church, not the church you see here, but the real church of those who are saved. It's not Jeremy who can say, yes, you're in, no, you're out. It's God's choice who saves. He said, no, nor can pope or bishop know who are true members. In Wycliffe's mind, salvation does not depend upon connection with the visible church or upon the mediation of the priesthood. He's saying this as a priest. 
but solely upon election by God. Eventually, Wycliffe held that everyone was a priest who was a Christian. Very biblical. I mean, that's throughout. I can show you that. You could show me that from the Bible, that everyone who's in Christ is a priest. And the only priest we have between us and God is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other human between us and God. And he was saying this based on the Bible. He, uh, he, he said the New Testament recognizes no distinction between priests and bishops. That's also biblical. You look in the Bible, there's not a hierarchy. There's no priest, bishop, blah, 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 blah. There's just one thing. It's called elders. If you look in the New Testament, it's elders. Or sometimes it's called bishops or pastors. All the same word, but it's just one leadership structure. You find that in the New Testament. So again, he's looking at the church. He's looking at his Bible. He's going, blah, 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 and, and pointing out what the Bible actually has to say. Priests and bishops, he maintained, should be honored because of their character and should set an example to their flocks. The collection of tithes, by that very fact, were revealed as unworthy of their office. He condemned the cult of the saints, relics, and pilgrimages. Soon, while holding to the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine of the Mass, he attacked transubstantiation uh, and, and taught that under some circumstances a layman might officiate the Eucharist. While not necessarily rejecting the seven sacraments, he did not believe confirmation to be necessary. There's no confirmation in the Bible. That's not how you come to Christ through some church process. It's through faith in Jesus. It could happen when you're five. It could happen when you're 50. But it's by Christ you're saved, not by some confirmation process in a church, however, whatever values that may have. He repudiated indulgences and masses for the dead, but retained a belief in purgatory. Isn't that interesting? I, I would like to go back and study that historically because, of course, you know, you look in the Bible and purgatory is nowhere to be found in the Bible. This is another one of these doctrines that kind of d evolved over time in the church. It's not, Jesus never taught it, the apostles never taught it. So I'd be interested to find sort of Wycliffe's reasoning on that, but whatever. It says, uh, he declared that intelligent sincerity in worship was of more value than form. Indeed, formalism and elaborate services might hinder true worship. So, in, in, in many different ways, he essentially just kept saying, come back to the Bible. Look at the Bible. Is that doctrine here? And, and you say, oh, come on, you're just splitting hairs over doctrine. But wait a minute. If, if it's through truth that God teaches us and strengthens us and blesses us, then that's how we come to know Christ. It, it's, it's through his Holy Spirit in our lives and through his truth. That's the way we grow in Christ. That's how the Spirit works. And so it does matter. It still matters today. Truth still matters today. False teaching is still happening today, and we still need to be armed with our scriptures. I, I, I experienced it this uh, Christmas. Christmas Day, December 25th, I was watching CNN. I, it was night. Actually, we're about to pop, I think we're about to pop in a movie, so I turned on the TV and CNN went on, and, and this little headline was on their faith in America. And so, of course, I'm like, whoa, you know, what is that? And, and I'm watching it, and it was, it was the, I just got the end of the show, but it was Paula's on, and she was talking to an imam, a, a rabbi, and a priest. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? An imam, a rabbi, and a priest walk into a studio. And, uh, <laughs> and, and they're kind of sitting there talking. And I, I wish I caught the rest of the show, but, but she just gives them the old, uh, like, you know, so tell me, in a nutshell, tell me what faith means. And first of all, the imam speaks. And he's, he's a Sufi, so if, if you know Islam, Sufism is kind of is the mystical wing of Islam. And I, I was sort of surprised they had a Sufi on there because... You know, Sunnis and Shiites are the more mainstream 
part of Islam. So they kind of had this guy. And if you know uh, Sufism, it's kind of mystical. It it's almost sounds East, uh, Eastern, and it almost sounds Hindu or Buddhist in some of its philosophy. I don't know if there's a connection. I don't know about the history of it, but it sounds that way. And he started talking about consciousness. And it's the key is becoming conscious. Conscious of your true self. And when your true self is not your emotional self or your mental self. It's the true self that's a part of your, you know, and I was just lost. And I was like, okay, whatever. Then, then the rabbi gets on. I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, bottom of the ninth, we've got one, one out. Here's the next guy up to the plate. Give us the true definition of faith. And, and the rabbi says, he says, I, I once heard someone say, and I wish I had the quote for you. I apologize for not having the quote. And he says, faith is when you're doing something really hard and you're struggling to do it, but it looks as if you're not trying hard at all. He says, that's the best definition of faith I've ever heard. And I just thought, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> what? You know, that's, I mean, I mean, no offense, but it sounds like one of those stupid things you get forwards on the internet. And people forward you all these, you know, corny, lame things that are supposed to sound deep, but they're really not. And I'm just like, what? You know, so uh, obviously this guy was not an orthodox rabbi. He must have been on the more reformed liberal end. Well, then finally, then they got the priest. I'm like, all right, bottom of the ninth, two outs. You know, maybe this is how you guys watch sports. This is how I watch religious programming. I'm like, come on. Come on. You can get it right, man. You know, and, and here's the priest. I don't know if the priest was Catholic. I don't know if he was Anglican. I don't know if he was Episcopal. I just know he had a collar. And I'm like, dude, you, you got it. I'm like, it's Christmas Day. It's like, just, it's okay. You can say Jesus. It's Christmas Day. Just say Jesus. You know, come on. And, and the, so the priest steps up to the plate. And he says, uh, he says, when I was born into this world, I had two loving parents there to receive me. And I know that when we die, there is a loving God there to receive us all. And I'm like, no! That's a lie! We're not all just going to go to heaven to a big group hug. Friends, there's a hell! And we are all headed there without the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's this kind of this idea like, well, how could a loving God send us to hell? Like, he's a holy and just God. He's holy and just. And there's none of us who are worthy of heaven. We deserve his judgment. The amazing thing isn't that God sends people to hell. The amazing thing is that God sent Christ to save us for heaven. That's astounding. Like, what? Where did that come from? God in his love sends Jesus. But his love is not some generic group hug. Everybody's fine. You're okay. I'm okay. Do whatever you want. Doesn't matter who you are. We'll all get to heaven in the end. His love is a specific love. And it came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on the cross because sin had to be dealt with. It's not just like, well, whatever you did, it's no big deal. Sin matters. Righteousness matters. And on the cross, Christ died died for my sins. And so I know the love of God, not as some generic, amorphous, world-encompassing love, but the love of God has a face, and it's, his name is Jesus. And that same Jesus is standing with his arms wide open for all people. Sufi, rabbi, Christian, stupid past, Baptist pastor, <laughs> saying, Jeremy, heaven is open if you just put your trust in me and stop trusting in yourself. And heaven is open. But how do we know this? Well, you got to go to the Bible and read the Bible for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't just say, well, Jeremy said, go to the Bible, read it yourself, and let God's word be the authoritative sword through which he purifies and guides 
his church. So maybe that's what you need to do for New Year's. Maybe that's your resolution this year. Read the Bible. I mean, maybe that's, that's what you can look to. Uh, maybe take up some kind of regular Bible reading, chapter a day or something like that. Maybe you need to join a Bible study. You're like, well, I don't know, I, I don't get this. Well, join a Bible study with some other people and read it with some other people. You can ask some questions. That's a great way to study the Bible in community. Uh, if, you, if you're like, where's a Bible study? Well, come talk to me after the service. I can hook you up in a Bible study, and Seth could. There's lots of good Bible studies around. It uh, doesn't have to be a Baptist Bible study. Just some people who are reading the Bible together and letting the Spirit and the Word work in their lives. It's through the Word that this work is done. So my friends, take up your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, please take the one in the pew rack home with you. Everybody needs to go home with a sword. I don't want anyone to leave this place unarmed. Make sure you have your Bible and then Pick it up and read it, and may God bless you through it. Let me just close, before we go to communion here, let me just close with the words of Spurgeon. I basically could have just not even preached at all and just read you this paragraph, and you would have been set. Here's Spurgeon. Neither may you dream of winning the battle by accident. No man was ever holy by random chance. Infinite damage may be done by carelessness, carelessness but no man ever won life, life's battle by it. To let things go on as they please is to let them carry us down to hell. We have orders. The one that rings out is this. Take the sword! Take the sword! No longer is it talk and debate and compromise. The word of thunder is, take the sword! The captain's voice is clear as a trumpet. No Christian will have been obedient to the text unless with clear, sharp, and decisive firmness, courage, and resolve, he takes the sword. We must go to heaven, sword in hand, all the way. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that, that you've given us your word, and your word tells us about yourself, that we don't have to guess and listen to Jeremy or listen to some guy on CNN or try to read the best-selling book to figure out who you are, but you have showed us who you are in your word. And I pray, God, that all of us would open up the Bibles on our own and that you might speak to each individual heart, that you might show us who you are and how to live. As we believe you, God, and we believe that it's through your word that you've shown us yourself. And so, Lord, now as we come to communion, I pray that we just might be able to celebrate Jesus, that we might see the beauty of his death on the cross for us, that we might feel, in a sense, the flames of hell from which we escaped. And at the same time, we might see the bright lights of heaven to which we're headed. And in between, we might see that cross that's made the way possible. May we just celebrate now as, as we come to communion. May this be a celebration time of what Jesus has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.